Exodus chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike down your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For, he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Many generations have probably fretted about what children born today will have to face in their lives. Uh, probably some parents and grandparents and great-grandparents in our congregation are, are worried about what children born now will have to grow up facing. And I'm guessing that, that many generations have, have felt the same way. Uh, there are people that are so despairing about, about the condition of our planet that they've given up on the idea and said it's, it's not fair to the planet to have kids and it's not fair to the kids to bring them into this planet. They've despaired of the whole idea. Well, if any generation could be forgiven for worrying 
about the consequences of having children at that time, it would be the Israelites in Egypt. After the policy of last week that we saw in chapter 1 was instituted, it was a, a policy of universal male infanticide among the children. So all of the Hebrew males that were born were to be immediately cast into the Nile River. So can you imagine if you were a parent in those days and you received the the news, which is normally wonderful news, that your wife or you are pregnant? That would not have caused a great deal of joy, but rather a great deal of anxiety because it would be something like a coin flip. Is this child of mine going to survive if this child survives birth and and into into uh, older age, or is this child of mine going to be immediately drowned in the Nile River? Something like a 50-50 chance of having your child murdered upon birth. Now, that is the situation into which this chapter 2 begins. And it's hard for us, as we read this story, if we know this story, and even I, who was not biblically educated, I I knew something about this story of this child who's about to be born. But if we could just put our our knowledge of that child aside for a little bit and read these opening lines, we can read these lines and realize how terrifying this news that normally would have been fantastic news, how terrifying it would have been to this family. We read now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman the woman conceived and bore a son. Oh, no. A son was born into this situation. Now, this this chapter and, and this book and, and, and all of the Bible, but we see a number of examples of this here, has, has a, a brilliant way of looking back and looking forward and planting little details that would have been very significant to those who knew the book of Genesis, and little details that also would become significant in the future, and we would say, aha, now I understand. Verse 1 emphasizes that this man, who's as yet unnamed, and this woman, who is as yet unnamed, were from a certain tribe, and it was from the tribe of Levi. So this son who was born was a double Levite. He was a Levite of Levites from a mom who was a Levite and a dad who was a Levite. Now the tribe of Levite was just one of the 12 tribes at this point and actually had been cursed by their father for their violence. But later we will find that this tribe of Levi became the priestly tribe, the tribe that was the intermediary between God and humans. And so so plant that in your mind that, that this is a double Levite here of this tribe that eventually would be the tribe that would stand between God and man and represent God to man and God uh, and man to God. So just keep that in your mind. That's a little suggestion here of something that, that might be going to be happening in the future. But this woman conceived and bore a son. And then it says, kind of curiously, the woman uh, the woman saw that he was good. That's how it says that he was good. This is the same. If you look back in Genesis, God saw that it was good. Well, here the mother saw that her child was good. 
And not that she would have done anything differently if it had been a, a deformed child or a sickly child, but she saw that this child really had a chance of, of surviving, and so she hid him for three months. And that was a desperate measure because she was breaking the law and did not throw her child or let her child be thrown into the Nile. And so she hid the child, but then she could hide him no longer, as you can imagine. Children scream, children make messes, children run around, and not yet, but children crawl around perhaps soon. And, and so children are hard to hide their presence. We know when they're children in our church, don't we? And we rejoice at the, at the way that children are in our church, but they're, they're, they're evident and it's hard to keep children hidden, and she did that, but then she, she could do it no longer. She could do it no longer, and, but instead of simply throwing him or letting him be thrown into the Nile, she, she tried something very, very desperate. And it might be easier to say that's terrible that what she did to her child, but, but this was desperate. This was, this was an attempt to save the child from certain death. And so what she did was she took an ark, she took an ark and she coated the ark with, with bitumen, tar, pitch. She put the child in the ark. She placed it among the reeds by the river in the water. And then she sent the child's, the son's sister, older sister, uh, to stand at a distance to know what would happen. Now, it's, it's interesting that uh, it's not translated this way here, but this is the only time other than in Genesis uh, this word is used. This word is used, this, this word for basket is ark. And the only other time it's used is with Noah's what? Ark. So there, here, once again, here's one of these little, little clues, little suggestions that, that, that maybe, uh, maybe uh, will come to something later. But she put him in this ark, and she put this ark in the water. And then we see what happens, and this is probably one of the best-known stories of Exodus. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe at the river. She has some young attendants with her. She sees the basket among the reeds. She sends the servant woman. She took it out. She opened it up. She saw the child. The baby was crying. And this woman had natural human pity and had pity on this child and recognized that this was one of the Hebrews' children. And then the sister, who was spying and trying to see what would happen, she jumped into action very astutely and said, would you like me to go find a wet nurse for this child so that this church could be, this child could be nourished? And when we think about that, there would have been a great number of wet nurses available in Israel. Women who had conceived and had given birth and then their children were taken from them, their sons were taken from them, but they were still able to nurse for a time. And so there would have been many candidates, but of course she went and found the, the son's own mother. And then there's kind of this, this, this delightful little, little play here where it says, uh, Pharaoh's daughter said to this boy's own mother, I will pay you to nurse this boy. To nurse this boy. I will pay you to nurse this boy. Now, we will find later, this may be another suggestion, we will find later that the Israelites were able to plunder the Egyptians. They were able to, to take advantage of them financially, and we may have a suggestion of that here, how this woman is paying the mother to nurse her own son. And so she did. She took her own son and she nursed him. Probably, as far as we know, for about three years, that would have been typical to, for nursing in those days. And so maybe at about three years of age, 
uh, she took her son back to back to Pharaoh's daughter, and we don't know that it may have been longer. We don't know, but but she took her back, took him back, and and Pharaoh's daughter named him named him here. And finally, we have a name for this boy. He's unnamed up to this point, and and he's named finally in verse ten. She named him Moses, which in which in Egyptian, as far as we can tell, means son of, son of. And normally it was a piece of a name. You would put son of something or other. But here it just stands by itself, son of. Maybe because she didn't know of whom he was the son. So simply called him son of. But it's interesting that this works as a play on words in Hebrew as well. And that's what's brought out here. And it, 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 it uh, is a play on the word in Hebrew for to draw out. And she says, because I drew him out of the water. So this is a very clever play on words. He's the son of somebody. And I drew him out of the water. Now, up to this point, up to this point, there is uh, this baby, whom finally has a name, hasn't done anything. This baby is completely passive. But there are deliverers in this story, and all of the deliverers in this story up to this point are women. All of the, those who are active in this story are women. We have Moses' mother with her ingenious thinking, desperate but ingenious thinking. We have the Moses' older sister who was jumped into action at just the right time to, to get to the mother and the baby connected again. We have Pharaoh's daughter who showed pity on this, this boy floating in this, this ark. And we have the, the servant girls who also participate in the story. So we have a number of, of female saviors, female deliverers here. And notice that this, this boy is completely passive. He's the one being delivered. He's not delivering. And yet, he's riding in an ark in the water. And, and so this is suggestive here. Because if we go back to the, to the story of Noah and the ark, we find out that Noah was delivered through the water by being in a an ark coated with pitch he was delivered but he was also the deliverer of humanity and he delivered humanity through the water and so just keep that in mind because here it looks like the author is placing this idea in our minds that that maybe this this one who was delivered through this ark from the water might also become a deliverer through the water as well. Well, actually, we see him trying his hand at being a deliverer here when he grew up. And, and it's interesting that, that uh, Stephen in, in chapter 7 of Acts says when he was 40 years old, so he was, was quite grown up. It says when he had grown up, in verse 11, it says that he went out to see his people, to see his people. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it tells us what? What did Moses know about himself? He knew that he was a Hebrew. So they didn't keep his adoption from him. They, he, he knew that he was a Hebrew, and he knew that the Hebrews were slaves and that they were oppressed and that those were his people biologically. And when he went out, he wanted to, to look on their burdens and see what they were suffering. And he saw an Egyptian. It might have been an Egyptian taskmaster a slave master beating a Hebrew, and it says one of his people. And so he was identifying here with his people. And then it says he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
Now, it's interesting. It's the same verb here in verse 11 and in verse 12. He saw an Egyptian striking the Hebrew, and then he struck the Egyptian. And uh, throughout the history of interpretation, it has been debated by by great scholars from from way back and, and up to the present day, was Moses justified in doing what he was doing? It's the same verb. Was the Egyptian striking the Hebrew to death? And so Moses repaid with the same thing, to death. It doesn't look like that. It looks like he was, as it says here in our translation, beating him. And then Moses struck him and the result was lethal. And was that justified or was that not justified? And I think the fact that this this has been hard to interpret by great scholars throughout history indicates that the text doesn't really give us an answer to that. It, it kind of leaves us hanging. Was this, was this a, a righteous action or was this a, an impulsive action? It says he looked this way and that. Was he, some, as some say, looking for help? And when he saw that no one else would help, he valiantly stepped in? Or was he looking to make sure that nobody was going to see what he was doing? The text is kind of ambiguous here. But he thought that he had gotten away with whatever that was. And... He went out the next day to try again. And he found the next day two Hebrews were struggling together in verse 13. And he said to the man who was the aggressor, it says, why do you, it's the same verb, why do you strike your companion? And this man who was striking his companion, he he challenged Moses. And he said, who gave you authority? Who gave you authority to, to be the ruler and the judge over us? Who made you a prince over us? And this was his question. And then he he frightened Moses. He said, do you mean to, and he didn't use the word strike, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid. He thought that his deed, he buried him in the sand. He thought only one person knew about it. Well, that one person must have gone out and said what Moses had done. So this, this thing that Moses had done became well known, and Moses was afraid And it had become so well known that Pharaoh heard of it and he sought to kill Moses for killing the Egyptian. And so Moses fled from Pharaoh to the land of Midian. We don't know exactly where Midian was, probably to the east uh, in the uh, the Sinai Peninsula, uh, outside of the the territory of, of Egypt. And he fled there and he sat down by a well. So that was that was Moses first attempt to be a deliverer. Now, it's interesting, oftentimes when we're reading in the Old Testament, we say, what does this mean? What, what, what should we do with this text? Well, it's interesting that the, the New Testament actually talks about this text in a couple of different places. One place is the one I referred to and I read earlier in, the, in uh, today, and that was in Acts chapter 7, where in Stephen's speech, giving his defense to the, the religious leaders of his day about his preaching Jesus as the, the Messiah, he, he recalls the story of Moses and he, he brings up this story. And what he says was this. He says, Moses thought that they would understand that he was God's deliverer. But they didn't understand. That's what Stephen did with this story. Moses thought that they would understand that he was God's man, his deliverer, his savior, but they did not understand that. And then Stephen went on to say, and that's how you have been throughout your history, God has sent you a number of prophets after Moses, and then he finally sent you the the maximum prophet, and you have rejected all of them. You haven't understood when God has come to deliver you. That was his message that day. 
And then we find another reference to this story in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, or chapter 11, that great chapter about faith. And here it points out that Moses left Egypt by faith, by faith. He didn't leave Egypt only by fear, but he left Egypt by faith. In verse 24, by faith, when Moses had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And we see that in the text, don't we? He went out to visit whom? He went out to visit his people. And when he saw the Egyptian abusing one of his people, he was identifying with them. And it says, by faith, he chose to be identified with God's people, no matter what that would cost him. And then it said, he considered the reproach of Christ, the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so now we have an insight that the writer of Hebrews gives us into this story that Moses was was making an attempt to be a deliverer. It was misunderstood, as Stephen tells us, but he was doing this in faith. He was was identifying with the people of God. Well, we left him at the well. It's a natural place to to go when you're in a a semi-arid or arid territory. You go to the well. That's where you're going to meet people, and that's where you're going to survive. And it's also, if you remember, some some interesting things happened at wells in Genesis. Uh, That's where the servant of uh, Abraham met Rebekah. That was an encounter at the well, and so we might be thinking that was kind of a a singles hangout as well. Uh, You'd go to the well. That's where you could meet other people and meet people that were possibly marriageable. Well, it turns out Moses was there, and he was at the well, and lo and behold, he had another chance to try his hand at delivering. He was first delivered, then he made an attempt to deliver that didn't work, and now he has another opportunity to try to deliver. And in this case, it's the seven daughters of a priest of Midian. And they they went to draw water uh, for their father's flocks, which was a a typical job for women to do. And there were some shepherds that took advantage of it. They drew the water, they filled the troughs with water, and then the shepherds came along after that hard work was done and drove the women off to to water their own animals. But it says Moses stood up and saved them. He saved them and watered their flock. And then they, they came home to their father. We now have his name. It's Reuel. And he said, how'd you get back so quickly today? And they said, well, there was an Egyptian at the well and he did what? In verse 19, he delivered us. He delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and water the flock. And here's a man who has seven apparently single daughters. We don't know if he had any sons or not. And he hears about a valiant Egyptian at the well who delivered his daughters. And he said, where is he? Why did you not bring him? Go call him so we can invite him to eat. And so they did. And Moses, it said, was content to dwell with the man in verse 21. And he gave his daughter Zipporah, likely the the oldest of those marriageable, Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son. And so we end the story really in the same place we begin the story. We begin with the birth of a son. And that son was named, named Moses. I drew him out. The son of somebody. And now we end with giving birth to another son. 
and he called his name Gershom. For he said, and here's another play on words, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Ger, the word for sojourner, and this sounds like sojourner. So I, he's, he's pointing to his status, that he's, a, he's an outcast, he's a, he's a foreigner, he's a, he's a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, it's, it's not clear to which land Moses was referring. Was he referring to Egypt, where he was a, he was a sojourner in Egypt? Was he referring to Midian, where he was a sojourner in Midian? And I would say all of the above and then some. Because look at the whole life of Moses. The whole life of Moses, he was, a, he was an outsider. He was a sojourner. He was a sojourner in Egypt. He was a sojourner in Midian. He always felt himself to be kind of a sojourner among his own people who never accepted him completely. He was certainly a sojourner in the desert. He never was able to reach the promised land that God had 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 him lead the people towards. He was buried in a foreign land in an unmarked grave. He was a foreigner. He was a sojourner throughout his entire life. And that's the that's the emphasis of the Hebrew interpretation of this in in Hebrews chapter 11. It says that he was looking for a reward. He was a sojourner. He was he was not a part uh, that wasn't his home. He, he was a part, but he wasn't a part. He was kind of always, always inside, but always outside. So he was, he was, he was looking for a reward. He wasn't looking for to plant his roots eternally where he was. He was looking forward to what what was to come. And when we feel like that, and I hope we do feel like that, oftentimes, when we feel like that, it's a reminder. When we go through trials in life, it's a reminder. When we have that out-of-place feeling, like I just don't really belong here, I don't really fit here, I don't really understand what's going on, and I'm often misunderstood by my neighbors, I just, I just don't feel like this is, this is my home. Well, what we're declaring is that we too are sojourners. And the Bible tells us that. Peter tells us that very, very clearly in, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you know to whom that described originally? That described the people of Israel. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is here describing the, the, the new people of God, the people of God since the, the coming of Jesus Christ and saying God has gathered you and made you a people and he has given you the privileges that he had given to Israel, holy nation, royal priesthood, chosen race. And then he says to, you, says to us, beloved, I urge you, I urge you as sojourners, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's he saying to us? He's saying, I urge you as sojourners and exiles never to forget that you are sojourners and exiles. I urge you and so as sojourners and exiles always to remember that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do not give in. Remember that you are not planting yourself here forever. 
You can't even if you wanted to, and you ought not to want to, because like Moses, you're looking for something bigger. You're looking for something better. You're looking for something lasting. You're looking for a reward. Gershom. Maybe we should all be called Gershom. Sojourners in this land. Now returning to our text. That's really the end of the historical period. But now we we kind of pan out and we find a, a, a God view here. An, an angle from God's perspective. We find that it ends with this boy named Gershom, sojourner. And then we read, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. Which king of Egypt? Probably the one that was trying to kill Moses. Which suggests that maybe he could go back to Egypt. And the people of Israel groaned. So meanwhile, back in Egypt, here Moses is making his life in the desert. Looks like his life is just going to be a shepherd for the rest of his life. But meanwhile, back in Egypt, the people were groaning because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now, that's not something that that's visible in history. Up to this point, we're reading history, and now, now we step back and we see a, a, a perspective that, that's what's really going on here. We have insight into the fact that, that their cries were going up. We knew that. We knew they were crying out, but now we learn that their cries reached God, that they reached God. And then it says, and God heard their groaning, And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. And God knew. So it says, God heard. God remembered. God saw. And God knew. Now, this is not to suggest that before this point, God did not hear that God did not remember, that God did not see, and that God did not know. But that's what it looked like. That's what it looked like in Egypt. On the ground, it looked exactly as if God did not hear, God did not remember, God did not see, and God did not know. That's what it looked like for the people of Israel. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And sometimes that's how it feels, doesn't it? We cry out, we groan, we cry for help, and we don't know. Because it sure doesn't look like and it sure doesn't feel like God is answering. It may be something that we've been praying for days weeks or years or decades or maybe something in our family line that people have been praying about for generation after generation and say, God, intervene and do something about this. And it sounds like or it feels like the earth is is swallowing us up and the heavens are made 
of iron. And nothing gets beyond the, the roof as we cry out to God. Here we learn. And this is news, by the way. God has not showed up much in Exodus. He's left his fingerprints in different places. But, but now this is, this is something new going on here. It says, God heard and remembered and saw and knew. It looks like God is about to do something different. About to do something new. About to, to intervene in a way that he hasn't done yet. It, so far, he's been behind the curtains, causing an ark to get to a woman who would have mercy and and providing the mom as the wet nurse and, and the daughter there at the right time and, and the women at the well and the compassionate man and the son. He's, he's, been, he's been working through his providence behind the scenes, but now it looks like he's about to, to tear back the curtain and he's about to burst onto the scene and say, I am about to act. And in fact, it was about time. And I mean that very literally. It was about time. For God to act because he had said that he would do just this at this time. If you go back to Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15, he had told Abraham hundreds of years before he had told Abraham, the Lord said to Abram, verse 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. Do you hear that? Sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. It was time. Why? Because God said it was time. Now, why 400 years? I don't know. But he said that's what he would do. Your people will be servants there for all that time. And then I will deliver them. I will bring them out and I will bring them out with great treasure. God was about to act and he had to act. He had to act. Why? Because he had said he would act. And not only had he said he would act. He pledged himself to act. He pledged himself with a, a ceremony that involved the shedding of blood. I'm not going to read it all, but in this Genesis chapter 15, there is a ceremony here where Abraham is instructed to take animals and to divide them in half and set the halves out against each other, over opposite each other. And then he gave this promise, and then Abram fell into a, a, a dream and a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, flame, smoke, We'll see that in Exodus, the, the symbol of God passes between the pieces, the, the pieces of the animal here. And it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land, the land of Canaan, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, God had promised a number of things. I will make your name great. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. All the nations will be blessed in you. I will make you a great nation. I will give you this land. And now he seals it. And he seals it with this curious ceremony of the dividing of the animals. Now we don't have information from that time, but we do have information from later, from the time of Jeremiah, about what this ceremony meant. And it looks like it was, and this was the word they used in, in, in the Hebrew Bible. It says, that when they made a covenant, the word is they cut a covenant. And it looks like it's referring to this cutting of the animals in two. And the idea is this. 
The idea is this. We are going to make a covenant. You and I are going to make a covenant. We are going to cut these animals in half. And if I don't keep my side of the covenant, may I be cut in half. If you don't keep your side of the covenant, may you be cut in half. But notice here, God is making the covenant. And the animals are cut in half. But Abram doesn't pass between the pieces. God passes between the pieces. And what's he saying? If I don't fulfill my promise to you, may I be cut in half. Now, we're going to spend some weeks in Exodus. And we will see in the rest of this book, in the book of Numbers, in the book of Joshua, that God fulfilled his promise. All of them. He fulfilled all of his promise. He kept the covenant. And so he wouldn't have to die. But we'll also see, as we read the New Testament, as we've already seen, that the deliverance of God, of the people of Israel from Egypt and his introduction of them into the promised land was a picture. It was an anticipation. It was a foreshadowing of what God would do in the future of a greater deliverance. A deliverance not just of one people, but from people from all tribes, tongues, and peoples and nations from around the globe. This was a picture of the greater deliverance that he would would accomplish in Jesus Christ. This deliverance was a a foreshadowing of our deliverance, and Moses was a a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the, the greater prophet like Moses. But I just want to point out one detail, and that is when when God executed that that greater deliverance through his son, he once again fulfilled all of the promises that he had ever made. But at the same time, he took upon himself the penalty for an oath breaker. He didn't have to die because he's the one who kept his promises. But in the death of Jesus Christ, we see that he is delivering not the way Moses first tried to deliver by killing, but he is delivering by dying and taking upon himself the penalty of a covenant breaker so that unfaithful people, people like us who have broken God's law in thought and word and deed could escape the penalty that we deserve because our perfect Lord, the covenant keeper, has taken the penalty of a covenant breaker upon himself. And so this deliverance that Moses tried and at first failed to execute, he tried to do it by killing. But God, when he comes to redeem us and deliver us, he does it by dying. Let's pray. Our God, we have ranged over millennia here from the story of this this one baby boy who was born, delivered, and then tried his hand at delivering. And we see how he is a, a window into what you do, what you promised to do and what you did do in delivering your people from sin and darkness and death and hell. And we 
We are amazed, O God, because you're the one who always keeps your promise. And yet you took upon yourself the the penalty for a promise breaker. So we praise Jesus, the one who delivers us from all of our sins. And we pray that having been delivered from all of our sins, having been made a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that we would live now as sojourners and exiles on this earth, having such a good behavior among those around us that they would end up praising you along with us. And we pray this in Christ's name.